0: The more I live my life, the more I don't feel the need to really explain the mediums by which I express myself, the more I, I just allow the common denominator to be me. And so, you know, I can talk about the specifically astrology, specifically music, but I now prefer to talk about them all kind of interchangeably because I think that's more interesting and it makes more sense to me. and. As an artist, when it makes sense to you, that's, that's the level of trust that you have to start with.
1: It's tempting to describe Marissa Malik's practice as a crossroads. One where music production intersects with mysticism, DJing and astrology. But the way she talks about these complementary aspects instead suggests that they are all on a sort of Mobius strip, a continuum with no beginning or end, on which they harmonically coexist and feed back on each other. This paradoxical geometry relies on a worldview and a critical gaze that has allowed Marissa to explore and put her own spin on the correlation between language, racial segregation and gender. Especially in the framework of diaspora communities like her own. Marissa, who's also known by her musical moniker Manuka Hani, was raised in Connecticut by a Mexican mother and a Pakistani father, and is now based in London, which goes some way to explain her often chaotic reinterpretation of Latinx infused club music from all over the global south. We sat down with Marissa Malik to talk about language, rituals, migration, mysticism, barriers, queerness and sexuality in her musical domain. And we got the ball rolling with her dissertation, Language Erasure, The Loss of Mother Tongues in Diaspora.
0: One of the main kind of uh, explorations of this dissertation that I still feel very connected to because, you know, now it's been about five years since I've published this and it's ready for a second edition, but um, starting from this place of race and language being so intertwined and um, habitus within language and how they intersect, because language is always seen as something completely different. And when we think about it, it's um, it just feels very normalized to wherever we are, when actually it's so much part of one's demeanor and it's so much weaponized against people or or in positive ways it's or it's um you know interpreted in positive ways towards people to where they can you know benefit from different colonial positions it's really interesting you know as i've traveled the world more um, being in you know in the global south and seeing how being able to speak english is an expression of class versus you know, how it's, you know, withdrawn in other contexts for protection. And so I think with that aspect of my research, I was I was really keen to dig up some statistics around how you know, we saw the correlations between language and race and then also thinking about how the the kind of micro expressions of violence that continue in empire through multilingual models um and how you know from my very specific experiences you know that that was the starting point for me but then you know it's I think oftentimes um like you were saying er, academic rhetoric starts from a place of uh, a wide scale a more macro theory and then kind of needs to prove itself whereas I was trying to invert that model um with my work and I guess I've I have a very open interpretation of language and, and um, I think I was really, I, because I've already seen magic as a language that I've learned and because I've seen music as a language that I've learned from a young age as well, um, I just was really interested in diving into the specifics of a very normalized um, interpretation of what language is. Starting from a place of defining your terms is something that a lot of academics do, and I wanted to be really specific about this because that was kind of the the keystone of, of the work. And when I was exploring this, it was so interesting to see how everyone's interpretation, when I was exploring the mother tongue, everyone's interpretation of what that was or wasn't was so different. And so finding that common ground was really important to me. And then also you have different notions of what mother means and what, you know, you you have like there's so many different ways you could call it. But I think um, in the work, I really wanted to have people understand the, the starting point in the same way that, you know, there were so many nuances when I moved from the U.S. to the U.K. around whether someone was first generation, second generation, and so starting on that that standpoint was really important. But then also, um, just I wanted to bring in an element of feeling to when I was discussing mother tongue. Um, so there was a really important aspect of wanting to express the lament that occurs within diaspora um, around what that tongue is to someone and then what meaning it holds and you know when I think about this in terms of the music sphere um, I know a lot of people in the global south eye roll at um, like diaspora kids because you know we sit here like you know kind of having this ancestral like lamenting and yearning that they live with the realities of the global south every day and there can be a romanticization of that and you often have a lot of you know diaspora musicians exploring the ancestral sounds and indigenous sounds from their motherlands more than the people living there because it's so normalized there that there's an aspiration towards the west versus a yearning for the global south or whatever the like country of origin is and so since writing this work I've been able to see in real time the different ways that people reclaim this um, in specifically in the musical sphere. And then also in the astrological world, um, the integration of magic with like um, with spiritual practice and indigenous magics with spiritual practice, both of which um, are fundamental parts of my research too. When we think about how history is written, like um, the, the idea of motherland, the idea of, of nurturing fertility, but then also like a bedrock and a starting point. Of, it's almost like the womb, which is such a sensitive and naturally soft area. And a lot of the time, you know, as I talk about in my research, like whatever is seen as feminine is not seen as high knowledge and so is therefore often just taken less seriously by like western ideas of of um, you know study in general and so the notion of the mother tongue is like naturally kind of withdrawn from from like hyperanalysis and i wanted to give it the breath of a kind of really intense exploration and also highlight the you know since a lot of this like research around multilingualism in terms of colonial strife has occurred which often it just occurs in terms of you know like there, there was some there was some like really important research i talked about that I, I found in my dissertation that kind of talked about the importance of multilingualism but not necessarily um a more theoretical analysis of it in terms of gender which language is super gendered um so like I wanted to make sure that it had a more contemporary feminist approach to those things. Adding a plural creates a, a sort of limitlessness. Um, and I love the letter S as well, just as the shape, because it has no no harsh angles to it. It's this continuousness. It looks like almost a, a winding route itself. So that was something just visually that I was like thinking about while I was writing. Um, and I was thinking about adding this to mother tongues and then also diasporas. But yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to open it up. I wanted people to be able to engage with this idea on a new plane. Like because when you see mother tongue as just one, it it kind of creates a, a didactic notion of self as well. And I think just in an increasingly, you know, cross over world, I don't like saying you know, like a cultural melting pot, cause it's not a melting pot. It's a, it's a very, if anything, it's a very forced way that the world navigates itself through migration. You know, this idea of a melting pot makes it almost like you can picture the seamlessness to it. Like everything's being chucked in equally when in, in fact people are being, you know, dislodged and, and deported and forced into certain places based on colonial enterprise and borders. Um, which shouldn't exist. So, you know, in an increasingly, I guess, multi-hyphenate world of and where people are crossing over in ways they hadn't before, there's a, a a desperate need to open up what that term is and isn't. And in the same way that, you know, it opens up the sense of belonging, which ultimately I think a really important aspect of my work is the notion of belonging. Because one thing I didn't ever want to skirt around in my writing was the emotion behind um, what this was and I think that emotion is really clear in my work. Um, it's a really intricate concoction of rage and sorrow but also intrigue and so much academic work for validation kind of embodies this stoicness to it and removes the the author and you know I, I never want to do that because I never want the self to be removed from the history of whatever I've written because that creates so much more work for whoever is going to be looking in the archive later. For me, language is a system of understanding. It's its patterns, it's exceptions, it's parameters, and it's it creates a level of commonality that can be adapted. And this creates the framework for so many things to be seen and interpreted as a language. I talk about tarot as a language a lot because ultimately you're drawing from the same information pools in the spiritual realm you're just using a different route to get there so i think um you know whenever i'm talking to people who want to explore spirituality and witchcraft but they're like oh i don't know if tarot is for me i'm more interested in this i always say like you find whatever language feels comfortable to you and that's a really beautiful thing about exploring magic is you get to do that on your own terms a lot of the time or you get to you know find ways that work and there's not one kind of rote way to do that um, in my perspective anyway. And so I think um, by starting from a point of understanding different systems as language and applying these kind of explorations of the, the same way we would explore linguistics that, that we explore the level of communicating through music, magic, science as language then we open up a level of communication that I think is infinitely more clear and um, exciting than if we just kind of relegate it to whatever corner of our brains we think it exists in. Yeah, these these are self-imposed barriers. It's like it's like shanty shanty barriers that you can actually very easily see over if you just poke your head. I'm actually reading this amazing book, which um, because it's early in the morning and I'm on my first coffee, I can't remember the name of, but I will find um, that explores the history of the witch trials in Europe and in relation to modern medicine. Because actually, it was male ego that stunted, as we can suspect, that stunted the progression of medicine because so many. Um, of the first doctors were women who were healers who were aiding with um, they were midwives and seen as witches therefore killed or you know had to be in live in hiding in the woods um, who were making the first antiseptics and salves and and concoctions that were helping people through childbirth which is kind of one of the most extreme and natural forms of human bodily expression that many people with uteruses experience and many people were forced to experience historically against their will. And this was in the time, I think I want to say this was like 1700s when you know people were still bleeding with leeches and whatnot, which we know does little to nothing. And so those women were killed, those types of knowledge were destroyed very avidly. And it created this, you know, people would actively do the opposite of it to one, not seen as being consorting with witches and two, to further invalidate. Surely if a woman was creating that knowledge, it couldn't have been true. And so this created this huge lapse, I would say probably at least 150 year lapse in Mm -hmm. knowledge that could have been prevented if there wasn't seen to be one, a gender barrier of knowledge, and to um, one that was derived from the sac- interpretations of the sacred and profane, because that sort of knowledge was seen as profane by the church, and so it was then you know, eradicated. And this is also at the crux of the, the destruction of indigenous knowledges too. Of my connection to the spiritual as a means to then interpret the world as being a place that can exist without borders. For me, in my own self-analysis, I think I've always started from a place of not understanding the segregation between so many different things. You know, I grew up in a place where street by street, town by town, there was so much racial segregation. And I was reading in books, how this used to exist and seeing it in real life and not really understanding why people weren't seeing that in the same way that I, uh, you know, when we would do science experiments at school, I'd be like, well, this is magic. And then how can you say a magic trick isn't magic when what is felt is real is real and it's consequence a lot of the time. Um, which is a pillar of sociology. I then went on to become a sociologist, but I've always seen the infinite potential to not relegate things to any one corner and to communicate because communication is something I value as someone with very dominant mercury placements, especially in my chart. So with magic, this separation that is perceived as the real and the unreal, the seen and the unseen, exists far less than in my mind than people believe it to, And there has to just be an openness to seeing it. And I think a lot of people have natural propensities to see this. And then some people, um, I think everyone has the potential to, some people are more inclined to it and then some people very purposely shut it off because it's scary and it's, um, uh, you know, we're not taught how to deal with it, um, or navigate it, you know, cause it's not, sometimes it's dealing with it. If you're in like, I don't know, a crypt in the chapel of the Macbook where there's a lot of things that are existing that down there that want to talk to you. And then sometimes it's just navigating it when there's like an eclipse happening and there's a disturbance in your house, you know? So, um, because it's just seen as so different and so scary and unnatural, and then you have like the whole like Hollywood and horror movies, et cetera, just fearmongering around different things, which you know, there are things to be afraid of. but it's it's just not um it's not normalized in the same way that going to church is normalized, although the world's very quickly shifting around that too. And I really I've been enjoying in some ways how astrology has become so popular on like a such a pop basis. Um, and going from newspaper pulp and then having very niche circles where it was popular to this kind of every major platform wanting to talk about it. Um, you know, I, I have mixed feelings. I think like in some ways, I'm super happy because, This is a normalized conversation, which I now don't have to gently ease conversations in that direction. It's more like, you know, I could talk to a footballer and he could generally know what his star sign is. Um, Whereas in the past, it was kind of more of like, I would have to test the waters. Um, So having something normalized makes it easier to begin to talk about. But then things that I find difficult about it are that the, like anything that becomes pop knowledge it becomes more narrow in like and um, shallow in how it's talked about it just becomes uh, you know snap stereotypes a lot of the time which is okay because you, you have to start somewhere with knowledge and I think people who are interested can look more into it but then I really don't like how astrology and magic has been co-opted by neoliberalism as like so many things are because it's turned everything into a self-help complex of you can use astrology to just, you know, figure everything out yourself. And, you know, in the same way that you can get a gym membership and just work on yourself and you can do everything in isolation. And this is one of the most dangerous things about neoliberalism is that the idea that the self can exist so autonomously and it's just this horrible extension of the american ethic and dream of like do it yourself don't depend on other people you know it's you know so many times and especially in like relationship discourse which is hugely involved with astrology you know you see our compatibility you have codependence and independence talked about but we we don't talk about interdependence anymore and this is such an essential part of magic. Magic is about connecting to what's larger than you and connecting to community. And without a coven or something that resembles that, so much less is achievable through your own magic and your own power. And I think I really want to see people pushing the discourse of of magic and really pushing themselves to um, expand their horizons in terms of community and think in a more socialist way around these things Um, and you know feel instead of feeling a stronger obligation to self which you should have also allowing it to feel a stronger obligation to those around you and community. Approach to magic growing up I come from like a very spiritual household in both traditional quote-unquote and non-traditional ways um, I grew up in the Roman Catholic household, um, and you know religion was really important to my parents um, especially my mother and then but I also grew up in the house with my grandmother who is um, on my Pakistani grandmother who was although she was Christian, all of this existed under the lens of Christianity, but was still, there was so much folk magic involved in what I was was taught and and how I was guided spiritually growing up, which is very common, but people just don't address it. You know, like when you're doing an egg cleanse um, and then you go to church and realize other people don't do that, it's it's a little confusing, but then you start to catch on that there's indigenous integration of magic into what you're doing. And, you know, my grandmother was a Reiki healer. She was a, a tarot master as well. And I mean, I didn't find that out until later in my life, but she she was. And, you know, so you could feel a degree of shame and hiding around those things. But then also, they were there, they were very omnipresent in my life. And then after my teenage rebellion years when i really started to dig into those sides of magic that i could feel people were hiding because i was always super oppositional and and wanting to dive into whatever i knew i wasn't supposed to as teenagers do it actually opened up discourse in my family a lot more i think you know once i was confirmed in the catholic church <laughs> there was like a kind of relaxing and also when i when i left and came back there was uh, my my mom actually is very into like spirituality and astrology now um in her own way and um you know she's got more crystals than i do which is something i never thought i would see um growing up but then she on her own terms integrates things with um catholicism So I, yeah, it was, spirituality was a huge thread in my life. I, I began to research it and study it a lot more in my late teen years. And then continued my own independent research through, you know, books, connecting with people on Tumblr back in the day um, and like finding spiritual community there. I was very much, I grew up in a really small town I was, I had a very isolated childhood. because I wasn't in an environment where I could really connect to people very easily at all. So I was always on my computer, always researching, connecting with the world in a way that has really defined my whole path as an adult, because I would spend all my time online researching magic, tarot, astrology, um, and uh, UK dubstep. <laughs> Those were my two niche interests. <laughs> and... um And then, lo and behold, I've become a bruja who lives in the UK and is now a core member of the UK underground music scene. And I'm in this constant um, dialogue with myself of integrating the two together because uh, I exist, as I said earlier, like I exist as a common denominator between those two things. So I think I'm in this constant journey of finding the purest expression of self. Let's define a term as I love to do. A ritual is anything you do with intention that you might repeat to achieve the same outcome. So I do lots of daily rituals, whether it's my affirmations that I tell myself, which aid in a manifesting practice of, you know, I set an intention for the day today, I will this, 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 you know, whatever I need to hear that day. Some of them are consistent. You know, whether they're me telling me that I love myself or that I love the people in my life or that I love my life itself. Not that I need to often tell myself I love my life. There's so many ways that I find a level of appreciation for the places I end up and the people I meet and the things I do. Um, but affirmations are like one part of my, my ritual practice. Um, I have different cleansing rituals that I do on a daily basis, whether it's smoke cleansing, with different herbs, or whether it's um, when I shower, I shower with a lot of heavy salt to keep spirits that want to linger off of me, and also just keep my energy really clean. Um, which is also something I do in obligation to others in my spiritual practice because I find it um, for me it feels irresponsible to be giving my energy and my you know reading for people if I'm if I'm reading or even just interacting with people. If I'm not in a positive, or at least a, well, it has to be positive, but or if I'm not in a, a space where I'm, a good version of myself, you know, you know, and, in the same way that people who are closest to us see the, the our skeletons in our closet and the sides of us that are less favorable, I try and keep up spiritually with that as well through my rituals and my magic. It can come into what else can I do I end up doing? Um, So, yeah, I have daily affirmations. I have daily rituals. And then it also, you know, in terms of like community, like I was talking about, like community practice, I try really hard to um, make sure, keep tabs on everyone in my life. I feel like that's a really important part of being a bruja and a a spiritual person is if I have suddenly a feeling that I need to talk to so and so who I haven't spoken to in a month, that's something I'll do. This is all like... A lot of this people don't realize is very just normal aspects of being a human um, and being a person who's, you know, sociable and exists in the world. But I think because the mystique of magic is um, so shrouded and confused by media perceptions, um, that, you know, I, with, with my fellow friends who identify as witches, um, so many of them will be like, Oh, I'm really tired. I need to just go fry some garlic in a pan. You know, like that's the ritual I'm craving right now. And anyone else might be like, well, I just did that last night for dinner. It's like, well, that's a ritual if you want it to be. So my, my daily practices, um, kind of revolve around those types of acts. Even if I don't shower that day, because I'm in for whatever reason, I try and always wash my feet as well, because um, that's a part of my body that I'm really connected to as a Pisces. You know, it it doesn't happen overnight. And it's definitely um, something that I think, for me, needed to occur with a lot of care and um, confidence and time. And I think you know, we live in a generation where um, people are more excited to self-appoint than than to be on the journey. And the journey is so important because when you call yourself something, you're accepting a level of responsibility towards others as well. And um, when there's more focus on the visibility around something than the practice, it becomes a shallow act and the magic is weak and it it's not fulfilling in the way that it should be for everyone involved but because we have such a media driven you know clout industry complex it becomes more i think it's people want to go on tiktok and then tomorrow call themselves astrologers and i'm not saying that there's not a lot of people who are doing that and 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 do have the credentials and i also don't like being in a position where i'm i'm judging that But it took a long time for me to, to self identify as all the things that I do, because with these really ancient practices, there's, it's so loaded and it's, you're having to honor a line that you're coming from and understand that history as well. Not that some people don't have access to that and that's fair enough, but it's something that you have to really feel on a deep level and, you know age can come into that as well you know i i don't know i think for me it took external validation as well before i finally got to that place of understanding and it doesn't need to for everyone some people are more confident than i was at a younger age perhaps but also when i was not self-identifying super publicly as a bruja or as a tarot reader or anything and i was just kind of saying that this was part of my practice as an artist, which is a much more loose term, and is a, a, it implies that there can be a lot more freedom and dabbling amongst things, which I still identify as an artist as an umbrella to what I do. Um, I was able to read for people and it felt less pressure and there wasn't this this level of revere that I was putting myself within. But as I as time went on, and I started to trust my own practice more and and also seeing the results and seeing that I did know what I was doing and it was working and I I did trust myself to be in these positions um, of power, which are really delicate and come with so much care and responsibility, then I was more willing to self-identify that way. Because, um, I mean, this is how you end up with cult leaders is like you have an unchecked narcissistic ego That goes with a level of spiritual power, and this, you know, at at the crux of all socialization is power, and to wield magic is to wield power. And um, isn't that a Spider-Man quote? With great power comes great responsibility. It's very true. Good job, Marvel. (laughs) So I, I when I when I accepted the title, I accepted responsibility. To name anything is to give it power. When you give someone your name, when you tell someone your name, especially in this day and age when we have pseudonyms and, and monikers, actually knowing someone's first and last name is very powerful and it's so vulnerable and I just it's almost like I can't believe we've been living in this world where people just know each other's entire names. You can really invoke someone. And I always say, especially in times when like my friends are trying to get an over get over an ex, I say, stop saying their name create a pseudonym, create some sort of thing that you call them. That isn't their actual name because invoke that invokes someone and it invokes something. So when, when I started identifying as, as a bruja, as a witch, as a tarot reader, as a a type of priestess, like that was, that was a new title. That was like a level of power, like I was saying, and, and that becomes a huge part of your identity. And you have to you have to understand that, um, and you can't just leave it when you don't feel like doing it anymore. You know, I mean, you can, but the damage that does to your spirit and to your ancestors is really intense. I've found in times when I've, you know, when I've been in dark places and I've said, you know, this type of work isn't for me anymore because it is work. Um, they were like, "Fuck no! What are you doing?" You've, you've accepted this. Like, okay, that's good. Let's keep going. <laughs> okay, you're reading your horoscope, and it says that, you know, this month, you're, it's going to be easy for you to communicate. You're, you know, you're having a month where there's a good level of of you know like your ability to get your point across to others and i think in a liberal interpretation of that you could you could say okay well i'm going to use that to my personal advantage and i'm going to um really like you know use it to get this promotion at work and And I'm going to make sure I have some good talks with this person, this person, whatever. And you're thinking from a place of self. And it is really important to think from a place of self. I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. But a good example of the interdependence of that would be to know the charts of other people in your life. Talk to other people in your life who might be having a difficult time and step in where you could help in that realm. Say you have a friend who's going to be going through a difficult time in exactly that same way. That's a chance for you to, you know, become a community leader to step up in a position where someone else can't. Um, but when you only think about the self, when you only read your horoscope and just think about that, it becomes more difficult for everyone to be interrelated. It, it sh- and or even when you, you do not to say that you have to know everyone's star sign like an astrologer and and step it in that way, but I think when you close off your communication and your healing and your vulnerability then that's also when the entrapment of of that using magic that way can occur when like you're only talking about your emotions with your therapist and you're only reading your horoscope and and talking about you know be only being vulnerable with in these very kind of regimented ways with yourself when actually astrology is meant to open a discourse and dialogue. So I would say the next step would be okay, you read that you're going to have a good month for communication, then you go have dinner with your friends, and you're all smoking outside and you say, Oh, well, apparently, I have the gift of the gab this month. And someone's like, really, because I don't. Um, can you help me do this? Yes, you know, and there's a level of stepping in based on where other people can't, that can happen. So queerness, let's define the term. Queerness is different from um, just, I would say, what we would interpret as like cisgender expressions of lesbianism or gayness or even bisexuality, because queerness implies an inherent rebellion. There's an inherent um, rejection of norms that comes with that. And whereas I see... This is my personal interpretation, whereas I see um, interpretations of sexuality that are more straightforward and and operate in a sense that want to fit into societal norms as they still haven't changed as um, not necessarily queer. Queerness has an inherent political, um, you know, rebellion to it to a a clear rejection of norms. Um, There's like an anarcho vibe there. And so with queerness and magic, because magic has been relegated to a place of needing to, um, in in the West anyway, needing to um, exert itself in very specific ways just to exist and be accepted, Um, and is often had often has to be hidden away and you know there's a a struggle and a a fight to to exist that um, and that integrates so well and we also see whenever things are um whenever things are rejected by societal norms they often end up coming together so we see queerness and astrology like you know I don't think I've ever been on a date with a girl where we weren't extensively talking about astrology. <laughs> there's just there's this natural flow of them together because I guess to distill that they exist with the outside of the systemic. And so there's a redefining, a having to do something where to generate self where there's not a blueprint. And so you're redefining, you're creating your own path. And I think this is something that then you add artists to it regardless of gender identity or sometimes politics but not all the time where artists musicians the path forward for us is not defined very clearly you know that's why there's documentaries that exist because of the strange intricacies of which your life unfolds you know I never expected to be sitting here today um given that I have a degree in printmaking, fine art, and, and then a master's in printmaking, you know, like maybe sitting here in a different context, but not just doing the things that I was actually obsessed with as a teenager online um, rather than what I spent copious amounts of money and years studying. But they all integrate, right? And so the commonality, I guess, then between artists, queerness, um, and, and magic as it incorporates into all of them is that people and communities are defining what they are and how they're used and um, you can't just turn on the tv or go to any sort of normal space I don't know what I would uh, what would I define as a normal space um, I guess a space where you know it the spaces of the general public where you can meet any type of person, but also people who hold whatever the majority thoughts are of that locale um, and, and have a similar life to someone else. a really tricky conversation because this is not to say that um, heteropatriarchy didn't fully exist in a lot of these indigenous cultures before colonization but a lot of the time it didn't exist in the same realm and um, I think like you're saying like that the reappropriation from my position means something completely different what does it mean when a queer brown woman is playing these things in a completely different space there's just so many layers of reinterpretation and um i see it as extremely emasculating when i do that because it's me on you know it's it's me authoring that and it's me taking control of that narrative in the same way that we might see some people might say oh women wearing very few clothes is you know you know." They, they don't love themselves and, you know, they're not empowered and they're just playing into like norms of masculinity in order to get male attention. And it's like, well, a lot of the strippers I know are lesbians and they just really know how capitalism works, you know, and you use the tools that you're given to um, to generate what you want to get out of this life. And also... Masculinity is an entrapment that no one can really escape at this point in the game. And I doubt I will see a point in my lifetime where we can. So um, making fun of it, I think, is one of the best things we can do. And I think my work does that. But it also um, really, the the formal qualities of what I'm playing, you know, regardless of what they're saying, it's the sounds are, it sounds fucking great, you know, which is like. Also hilarious, like I can just imagine, I, I I do think about how a lot of the times um, the music I'm playing, if I probably sat down with a person singing, he would maybe he would um, not hear or see me in the way that I wanted him to. But how kind of funny is it to be like, I don't know what you're saying really, but I think it sounds great because I'm not listening to you either. And uh, I guess that intentional not listening but then also valuing the other aspects of what are being presented. You know, a lot of the music I play is made by teenagers, black diasporic teenagers in the global south who deserve a platform. And I think we can't um, denigrate people's creations, especially in the global south, um, for being slightly problematic to us in the west. Um, We we shouldn't de-platform people because also um we have to understand that we come with an inherent level of societal understanding of norms and and, um, you know, gender and politics that are going to be different. and we can never understand their context. and we shouldn't write off entire genres for that. And we have seen, and we are seeing, like, um, so many um like strides forwards in these realms that are, in the realms of the, this type of music uh, i mean we're talking about a lot of different genres we can get specific in a, in the realms of a lot of the genres i play um takeisha for example is a great example of how um you know a a queer dominican black woman can just just dominate an industry and reappropriate this hypersexuality that is imposed on women women um in her field um MC Drica in Brazil, who's a stone cold butch lesbian, who is booked for everything and under Bolsonaro, that's an amazing radical expression, you know, and, you know, bad sister, who's, you know, a queer black um, Brazilian woman as well, just like really kind of creating this amazing fusion between techno and so many different kind of indigenous polyrhythms coming out of brazil um there's actually so much presence of queerness and rebellion um in london lil c who is one of i think one of the best um selectors and djs has a whole radio show called poom poom power hour where she's playing some of the most sexist dance hall that you've ever heard but she's a queer black lesbian and it's just this beautiful way to reclaim things and also to, to not write them off because, you know, the, I think just because someone is saying those things in their music doesn't mean the people who are making n- n- speeches aren't thinking those things too. And the, the white Germans and the Belgium guys who I feel much more unsafe around than I do <laughs> the guys from Angola or, or, or Portugal a lot of the time. I just think it's important to not write off genres like completely and also to come with like a level of understanding. Not, I don't respect that they think those things, but I respect their culture and I respect that this is a part of their history and part of their culture. Do I want it to change? Yes. Um, do I want to completely um, support and validate those aspects of those things? No. But also, am I aware that? brazil is a country with like one of the highest rates of wealth stratification and poverty and you know has treated its indigenous and black population worse than almost like like so many places that have been incurred colonialism i am aware of all that and we can't have the same again like we can't have the same expectations us sitting here at the MACBA, that we do kids growing up in flavelas and and we can't we we have to continually believe in transformation and transmutation uh, and this brings up a whole conversation of cancel culture. I think there are, I think people have the right to choose whichever level they want to engage with it or not but you know when if I were to play a song by a white techno artist versus a a kid from the Flavellas in Sao Paulo there's a level of dominance and masculinity that come with both cultures that um, mean different things on a macro scale. The techno industrial complex of Germany, I think is one of the most terrifying patriarchal things that exists. And I think also the the patriarchal dominance that occurs in um, in Brazilian music. In, in in you know in brazilian funk and the culture around it and and reggaeton like in in uh, latam like is also super prevalent but it's it's two sides of the same coin if you think about it just one of them they're saying words and one of them they're not <laughs> Magic in politics has always been super interwoven, magic and in capitalism as well. And like magic in a very loose term, like you have people invoking with sigils and everything. There was a lot of like kind of pagan magic that was used like, West, like Western European pagan magic that was used by, um, you know, the QAnon people and um, other psychopaths. Um, but this is something that has been invoked by people for millennia and like the integration of politics and the state you know with in Egypt in Rome in, in Alexandria you know the ascendant that we use in astrology comes from Alexandrian astrology Hellenistic astrology is another pillar of the kind of interpretation of astrology we see today Venus was the state Mars was was the foreigner um, in a lot of my research I present um, mars in equivocation to how saeed talks about exile there's a very natural integration between politics the state and astrology magic or you know whatever any type of magic that you might perceive steve jobs had astrologers working for him i know he's not what we would see as politics but in a world of hyper capitalism he might as well have been the president at a certain point um he had 10 astrologers who would decide launch dates um, which is he, elections is called, and it, it, I mean, even that word election, um, is so political <laughs> for obvious reasons, but, um, in astrology, you can pull elections, which is choosing days that are more, the most auspicious to make certain decisions, um, which is something I've even done for friends and businesses, you know, whether it's you should or shouldn't get married on this day, or you, um, should launch your clothing line on this day, um, And the Trump being elected is something that a lot of astrologers foresaw because astrology ultimately, as Chris Brennan said, one of the best astrologers, uh, astrology is the study of fortune and fate. So you can, not to say that it's a prescriptive pattern that you're locked into when we look in the future, but global trends can be predicted on astrological scales. So... When empires rising and falling over 250 years historically for thousands of years now is every empire reaching its Pluto return, which takes about 250 years. So right now we see the United States entering its phase of Pluto return and has been descending into complete entropy um, politically and just structurally for, you know, since about 2016, which is when I left. Um, and I went back to the old empire, <laughs> <laughs> which has been really good for me as well. Um, in terms of and um, in, in terms of my personal chart, because also there's a practice in astrology called astrocartography, where you can lay your chart over a chart of the world and generate a map that shows you where, which areas of the world activate different things for you. So for me, I'm ruled by Mercury and right over the UK is my Mercury line. And as much as it feels weird to admit, um, being in England in the gray moist bad vibes island, (laughs) um, as some may call it, um, especially compared to like sunny Barcelona, for example, has actually been really enriching for me and opened my mind and my ability to express myself just because of the, the terrain that I'm on, the astrological location of where I am which, you know, we're all super impacted by. And, you know, some people say like to me, like, oh, I went here for just one day and I felt like I was home. I'm like, you should draw your astrological chart for that. See what it says. Um, So anyway, I've gone a bit tangential to um, talking about politics and astrology, but there's, it's always been, it's always been there. But then, you know, then you get men's rights activists who read two articles and suddenly they think they're like wizards who are born out of the like womb of Thor or something, um, and they should just stop being on the internet.